and to move on now to uh, the preaching of the Word of God from Exodus 9, 13, all the way through 10, 29. This is a very long passage that we have before us today. Um, it's probably the longest passage I've read uh, before, before a sermon. Maybe I can think of one other. So you'll have to give your attention, really, and it's going to need to be sustained attention to the reading of God's most holy word, and then I will um, have some remarks to make about this text. Exodus 9, 13 through 10, 29. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow... I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now therefore send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh heard his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, so that there may be hail in the land of Egypt on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire ran down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continuously in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned, and the Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. The flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in bud. But the wheat and the emmer were not struck down, for they are late in coming up. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to the Lord, and the thunder and the hail ceased. And the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them. And that you may tell in the hearing of your sons and your grandson 
how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country, and they shall cover the face of the land, so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hail. And they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field. And they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians. And neither your, as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go, serve the Lord your God. But which ones are to go, Moses said. We will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and daughters and with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said to them, The Lord be with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. Excuse me. But he said to them, The Lord be with you if I ever let you and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go the men among you and serve the Lord, for that is what you are asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land, all that is that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts had never been before, nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land, so that the land was darkened. And they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field, through all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord. And the Lord turned the wind into a very great strong west wind, which lifted the locust and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand towards heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take of them to, take of them to serve the Lord our God. And we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, 
Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face again. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of it this morning. You know, the observations that I made regarding the first two plague cycles, that is plagues one through six, in the last two sermons, could also be made concerning this third and final plague cycle. Uh, The cycle begins with an early morning outdoor confrontation with Pharaoh. Uh, We see that Moses' demand is the same. Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. Clearly, there is intensification with these plagues. Uh, Things get really very serious in this third plague cycle. Uh, We see that human life is lost. The crops of Egypt are also greatly damaged. Flocks are killed. And so the situation grows very dark and very ominous uh, for the Egyptians a very dark and ominous, metaphorically speaking, with plagues 7 and 8, and literally dark and ominous with the outpouring of, of the ninth plague. Again, in this cycle, we see that the Lord distinguishes between the Hebrews and the Egyptians as He pours out these plagues, which are an assault against the so-called gods of Egypt. That is still happening as well. These are assaults against the gods of Egypt And though it is clear that Pharaoh is greatly disturbed and clearly convinced that this is the work of the God of the Hebrews, uh, his heart was hardened even still. And mention is made of this at the end of the account of each plague, 935. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go just as the Lord had spoken, 1020. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go, 1027. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. So each of these statements places emphasis upon the Lord hardening Pharaoh's heart. This has been a constant theme in uh, these plague cycles. So in other words, what I have said in the previous two sermons about plagues 1 through 6 may be said here as well concerning plagues 7 through 9. And I'd like to take a bit of a different approach in this sermon, therefore, by drawing your attention to three major themes. I want for you to see that at the time of the Exodus, the judgments of the Lord were in fact restrained. They were restrained. Two, I want for you to notice that the judgments of the Lord were restrained so that salvation could be accomplished for the Hebrews and also offered to them, to the Egyptians, in fact, to all nations. Three, know that 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 this time of restraint will one day come to an end. And all who are not in Christ by faith will be judged for their own sin. Now I have to go a little bit beyond the Exodus narrative itself to make that third point, but it is illustrated here. It is illustrated in in Moses' final encounter with, with Pharaoh, which we just read about. And so these are the three very general observations that I wish to make in the sermon this morning. First of all, let us consider the theme of restraint. The judgments of the Lord were restrained in the outpouring of these plagues upon the Egyptians. That might sound like a strange thing to emphasize as we consider this third plague cycle. I've already mentioned that the theme of intensification is here. Indeed, these 
three plagues were very severe. They were very ominous. There was hail like never before. Man and beast were killed if they were left in the field. There are, in fact, modern-day accounts of this, by the way, of, of great hailstorms coming upon people who are left exposed and human life being lost because of this. Uh, we see here that crops were destroyed. Fire from heaven came down. There was great wind. Uh, this was a great, a great blow to, to the to the Egyptians, and it must have gotten their attention. Have you ever been trapped in a severe storm before, I, I wonder? Not everyone has, um, but, but some have. I, I was remembering back to uh, the trip we took this past summer and, and to um, the fact that we drove up uh, to the place, and there were thunderstorms in the region, and my sister and brother-in-law and their family, in fact, earlier that day before we got there, got stuck in a, uh, a thunderstorm, and, and they were shaken by it, you know, um, it was a terrifying experience for them. Uh, we know that Martin Luther was converted by an experience like this, in fact. You know, there he was going on his way, and he got stuck in a thunderstorm and cried out to God, you know, uh, committing to, uh, to, to repentance and, and to faith. And so can you imagine the land of Egypt just being consumed by an event like this? Massive hail falling upon them, thunder and lightning, wind, and it was so very destructive, Human life was lost. Animal life was lost. Crops were utterly destroyed. God was certainly getting their attention. And we see that in this plague cycle. I mean, Pharaoh, is, he, he gets it, you know. He's, he's, not, he's not soft in his heart towards God. He's not truly repentant. But he can see that this is the judgment of the Lord upon them. And then the locust came. When we think of locust, we think, oh, what a cute little grasshopper that is. You know, that's not how farmers think of locusts, though. Uh, these things devour crops. They have a massive appetite, each one. And when they come in swarms like this, they just are devastating, uh, especially in that place and in that economy, which was very much agrarian. Uh, the Lord brought these massive swarms to Egypt by a strong wind. They were somewhere else, and they were all picked up and blown into this region and concentrated there. And they devoured the vegetation that was left by the hail. This, too, was devastating, you know. We get bent out of shape when our modern-day supply chains are disrupted, leading to shortages, you know. And, and what do those shortages mean for us that we probably won't get everything that we want for Christmas, you know. But, but here, uh, the, the, the people of Egypt, when they saw this, knew that they, they were going to starve. People were going to starve to death that year as a result of this, of this plague. Uh, for us, it's inconvenient for them it was a life and death situation. The darkness too. Uh, here in, in the ESV it is translated this way, that, that a darkness came upon Egypt, a darkness to be felt. Uh, that's an interesting uh, translation of the Hebrew. Uh, perhaps it is the correct translation. You, you can kind of understand what is meant by that. Have you ever been in a place that's so dark that you, you, it's almost like you feel it? The darkness is almost oppressive. You know, you feel it emotionally. Perhaps th that's the case, but... Commentators have suggested that a better translation might be a darkness that causes people to feel their way around, you know, a darkness that causes feeling. It's the kind of darkness that requires one to use their hands to figure out where they are at, you know, um, a darkness that causes people to feel their way around. It, it may be that that is a better translation of the Hebrew here, but whatever, whatever translation, uh, we get the point. There was a, a deep an ominous darkness that fell upon Egypt 
with the outpouring of this ninth plague. What caused this darkness, I don't know. We're not told. But it must have been incredibly disorienting, depressing, especially given everything that had been happening in the previous weeks. The, heat, the Egyptians must have been just thoroughly shooken. You know? They had witnessed one plague after another poured out at the command of Moses, you know, speaking in the name of, of, of the God of the Hebrews. So they must have been thoroughly disturbed by all of this. And when this darkness fell upon them, they must have felt like the end of the world was near, you see. You have to put yourself there, don't you, in the place of the Egyptians to kind of get a sense for what was going on here. These three plagues are the most severe of the nine. And in fact, the way the narrative is structured suggests that the first six plagues were kind of kind of in preparation to these three here that we are considering. Uh, there is an awesome display of the glory of God, of His sovereignty over all things in heaven and on earth, of His power and right to judge contained within these three plagues. Now, why then do I draw your attention to the restraint of God? And the answer is because the text draws our attention to it. As severe as these plagues were, we must remember they were restrained. God could have done worse. He could have done more. He could have extended these plagues. He could have brought in life, brought the lives of the Egyptians, of Pharaoh himself and the Egyptians to an end, and he would have done no wrong in doing. So these are, these are judgments, yes, but they are restrained judgments. The text draws our attention to this theme uh, for example, in 9.13, where we read, Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh, and say, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. The speech is um, extended here. Uh, For this time, Moses was to say to Pharaoh, I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and on your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. So a point was being made here, a demonstration of God's sovereignty over all things, of His supremacy is being made for By now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. God is saying uh, through Moses to Pharaoh and to all of the Egyptians, I could have cut you off. These judgments, as severe as they have been, are restrained judgments. Um, Here, uh, the Lord repeats things that have been said before in this message to Pharaoh, but again, special emphasis is placed on his restraint could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence. I could have cut you off from the earth. So then you could see that the plagues that God poured out upon the Egyptians, they do reveal that God is a God of judgment, but also that He is a God of mercy. Even that is displayed in the outpouring of the plagues themselves. He is a God of judgment, yes, but He is also a God of mercy. When we speak of God's mercy, we refer to the kindness of God to not give us what we deserve. And God did not give Pharaoh and the Egyptians what they deserved in in fullness. The wages of sin is death. And here, these idolaters deserved that, as we all do, in fact. Um, But here we see that God does not give it to them. He does not pour out His full judgment. He does not bring the final judgment upon the Egyptians in this moment. But instead, He sends partial judgments restrained judgments. Or to put it another another way, God judged the Egyptians in the days of Moses, but He did not judge them fully and finally. This was an act of judgment, but this was not the final judgment. This act of judgment is to be viewed as a prototypical judgment, therefore. Think with me for just a moment. 
just as the deliverance of the Hebrews was only earthly, temporary, and prototypical of the deliverance that Christ has accomplished for his people, a deliverance that is spiritual, heavenly, and eternal, so too the judgments poured out on the Egyptians were earthly, temporary, and prototypical of the judgment that Christ will mete out on the last day, and that judgment will be full, final, and eternal. So do you see what's going on here? The Hebrews are going to be saved. They're going to be delivered from bondage. But that salvation is not the same as our salvation in Christ, is it? Their salvation was earthly. Their salvation was temporary. Uh, They were led out of Egypt towards the promised land. Ours is spiritual. It is eternal. It is deliverance from Satan, from sin, from death. You, You get that. But we see the same thing going on with the judgments themselves. These judgments are prototypical too. This is not the final judgment. These are judgments of God that are, that are restrained. But, but what do they say to us? There is going to be a final judgment, right? Our God is a God who saves. Yes, He is also a God who, who judges. And so we must see that. Our God saves, brothers and sisters. Our God judges too. God has accomplished our salvation through Jesus Christ And did you know that he will judge the world through Christ on the last day also? So Christ is both Savior and Judge as well. Christ is Savior and Judge. We must consider both of these things. And when we see the earthly, temporary, partial, and restrained judgments of God poured out in the world, they are to remind us that a full and final judgment is one day coming. And they are to remind us that in the meantime... God is patient, He is merciful, and and He is kind. That is one way that we can describe this whole course of human history from the fall of Adam to the return of Christ. God's God's patience is being put on display, isn't it? Yes, He does judge. He pours out His judgments in part. His restrained judgments are shown from time to time. We see them, but He is merciful. He He is being patient with humanity. Now, The second point of the sermon today is this. We must recognize that the judgments of the Lord are presently restrained so that salvation may be offered to the nations. You say, well, where do we see that in this text? Actually, in a couple places. Look at 9.14. God speaks to Pharaoh, saying, For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and on your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. I I draw your attention to that text to emphasize yet again uh, the purpose of these plagues. They are so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. There's there's a kind of evangelism that's going on here in in, in, uh, the outpouring of these plagues, in other words. There's a demonstration of of God's sovereign power over all things. It's It's being put on display before Pharaoh, before the Egyptians, before the Hebrews, indeed, before all nations. God is is saying something about his supremacy. Look now at 9.16. But for this purpose I have raised you up, God says to Pharaoh, to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Do you hear now the kind of evangelistic language that's being used? I'm doing this, God says. Uh, so that my name, the glory of my name, may be proclaimed in, in all the earth. And consider the advanced warning that was given to the Egyptians regarding the deadly hail. Verse 19, Now therefore sin, get your livestock and all that you have in the field to safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field is, that is not brought home will die and the hail, when the hail falls on them. Uh, then whoever feared 
The word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses, but whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Do you see what's going on here? You know, Pharaoh continues to harden his heart over and over and over again. Um, but God is getting the attention even of Egyptians. They're beginning to notice what's going on here. And some of them, we are told, they fear the word of the Lord, and it leads them to take action. They probably didn't tell Pharaoh, of course, but they scurry out of that place and they go home and they, they call all of their servants and come in, you know, uh, because they're beginning to see that, that, that Moses' word is true and, and that the God of the Hebrews is real and, and powerful. So here is the observation. When these partial and restrained judgments were poured out upon the Egyptians, the Hebrews, the Egyptians, and indeed all nations were at the same time being called to God by God to turn from their sinful idolatry, to fear Him and to trust Him. When Christ returns to judge fully and finally, there will no longer be room for repentance and faith, but until then, room is left for repentance and faith among those living on earth. I'm saying that that's shown forth here, right? Time is still being left for repentance and faith, and, and, and all peoples here in the time of the Exodus were being called to that. They were, they were being called to come and to trust in the Lord and in His precious and very great promises. Nothing is said in this narrative regarding the perspective of the Hebrews, but surely many of them were being drawn to faith and strengthened in the faith as these partial and restrained judgments were poured out. It, it had to be the case. Really, the Hebrews are just kind of not mentioned, but they were watching all of this. And I'm sure that many of them went from having no faith to faith, and those who had faith, their faith was being strengthened as they watched the word of the Lord accomplished uh, right before their eyes. And in 1430, we will find these words. Uh, this is following the passing through the Red Sea narrative. Um, but listen carefully to what is said after the Hebrews are led through the Red Sea and then the Egyptians swallowed up. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in His servant Moses. Now, yes, that's referring specifically to what happened at the Red Sea, but I'm saying that that was what was happening throughout this whole plague, uh, these plague cycles. Uh, the, the Hebrews are watching. They're seeing what the Lord was doing to the Egyptians, and their faith grew uh, through it all. We know that, the, that God was getting the attention of the Egyptians also. Again, we are told that whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses, but whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. So some from among the Egyptians feared the word of the Lord, we are told. Now, I think it would be a stretch to assume that all of these who went and brought their servants and flocks into, into safety, I think it would be a stretch to assume that all of these had saving faith in the promises of God concerning the Messiah. Maybe some did, but I doubt there were many. Notice the text says that they feared the word of the Lord. It does not say that they feared the Lord Himself. And I think that is significant. They were convinced that the God of the Hebrews was pouring out these plagues, and so they took action to avert disaster. Uh, did they have saving faith? We're not told. Maybe some did. We do not know. But I will say this, however, that when Israel left Egypt, the Scriptures tell us that they went out as a mixed multitude. 
we are to understand that there were other ethnicities among them. Possibly some of them were Egyptians. Uh, does this mean that these Egyptians who went out with the Hebrews had saving faith? Again, we don't know for sure, but we must acknowledge that they identified themselves with the Lord and with His people in such a big way so as to leave Egypt, their home, and to go out and sojourn in the wilderness towards the land of promise, uh, the promise that was made to Abraham. That's very significant, right? Uh, God obviously got the attention, not just of the Hebrews, but even of some of the Egyptians and of some of the other ethnic groups that were there, uh, perhaps in slavery uh, in in ancient Egypt. We should not forget the impact that these plagues had upon the Hebrews, the Egyptians, and indeed upon the other nations of the earth as well. The other nations were looking in upon this and they were taking notice. I think here of what we read concerning Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, uh, we are told later in the narrative that he heard about everything that happened in Egypt and rejoiced uh, with Moses and with the Hebrews. And in the days of Joshua, as the conquest of Canaan began, uh, there's this story about Rahab who hid the spies, you know, as they were coming to, to spy out the land, land. And listen to what she said to the spies. I know that the Lord has given you the land. And that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. What, what is she saying? She's saying everyone is trembling because we've heard the news. We've heard of all that God did uh, to, to the Egyptians on your behalf and to deliver you. And so the point is this. The restrained judgments that the Lord poured out upon the Egyptians, they left room for repentance among the Hebrews, the Egyptians, and even the nations. And of course, this principle is true of the entire course of human history from the fall of Adam into sin to the return of Christ, God's judgments are restrained. And they are restrained for a reason. They are restrained for a purpose so that God's people will come to faith and repentance. This is such an important principle for us to recognize, brothers and sisters. Paul teaches this. In Romans 2.4 he says, Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, um, knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. He's saying, do you, do you think little of God's patience? Do you kind of take advantage of it? Uh, don't you realize, this is me now summarizing, Paul, don't you realize that, that God's kindness, his, his forbearance, His patience, all of it is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your heart and impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So we're not to think little of God's patience. In fact, we're to be astonished at God's patience. The fact that His judgments are presently restrained should astonish us, but we need to see the purpose for the restrained judgments. It's so that salvation might come to all of God's people. Peter teaches this too, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. 
The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So here is a reference to the final judgment. And so Peter is saying to those who are perhaps criticizing the Christians, you know, who keep talking about the final judgment, I guess, uh, they, they maybe are mocking the Christians, saying, well, where is he? Why is he taking so long, you know? Is he delayed? Is he hung up or something? You know, where is he? And Peter is saying, listen, that's not the perspective we should have about the delay. His delay is, is due to his patience towards us. It's due to the fact that he is leaving room for faith and repentance. He's now drawing in his elect through the preaching of the gospel. That's the perspective that Peter wants us to have. And as I said before, this is a very important doctrine. I think it helps us to view life in this fallen, sin-sick world, which is so filled with suffering, trials, and tribulations, and injustice. It helps us to view all of that from a different vantage point. Have you ever asked the question, why? Why all of this suffering? Why all of this injustice? God, why don't you just set it right now? You know, make it right today. We, we want to be done with it. We're sick and tired of all of, all of the difficulty associated with, with, with living in this life. And, and, you know, one of the things that we often emphasize is that, well, these trials of tribulations, they refine us. And that's true. That is very true. We need to have that perspective on them. But another perspective we must have is that these trials and tribulations, these these sufferings, the injustice that we see in the world, God is putting up with all of it because He's doing something very important in the meantime. He's bringing people to faith. He's drawing them to repentance through the proclamation of the gospel. Don't you think that's an important perspective to maintain? Why, Lord? Well, this is one of the reasons why, right here. So that God's kingdom might be built, so that it might grow so that it might be established, so that more and more might be brought into it through the proclamation of the gospel. Now, I mean, here is the point I'm really trying to get at. Brothers and sisters, it's so easy for us to look at the trials and tribulations of life, the sufferings, the injustice, and to just gripe about them constantly. And you've heard me say, well, we're to rejoice in them because God does good things in us through them. That's one thing that must be said. We're also to view them from this vantage point. Yes, but God is doing marvelous things in the world today. Um, and he's even using these, these difficult things, these even wicked things, to accomplish his purposes somehow. His judgments are now restrained. Yes, we wish he would just make it all right now, but, but he's not. He, he, is, he, he is not yet coming. He has not yet come because he is still building his kingdom. Um, I feel like I'm struggling to put it into words, but I'm here urging you to think upon life in this fallen world with all of its corruption, with all of its injustice from this vantage point too, and to see that God is building His kingdom. That's what He was doing here in the days of Moses. You know, He was calling His people out as He poured out these partial and restraining judgments upon the Hebrews, uh, upon the Egyptians. And He was drawing people from every tongue, tribe, and nation to faith and to repentance. We know that ultimately He has done this through Christ. The third and final observation is that one day this restraint will come to an end and all who are not in Christ by faith will be judged for their own sin. 
Again, I do have to go beyond the Exodus story to make this point, but you could see it typified at the end of the ninth plague when Pharaoh, persisting in his sin, says to Moses, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face you shall die. Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face again. Moses had been appearing before Pharaoh over and over again, saying, repent, let let my people go. He's been called to repentance time and time again. Signs have been shown to Pharaoh and to all of Egypt, the Hebrews too, that, that God was behind this. So God was patient here. God was calling Pharaoh to repentance over and over again. But we see here in this narrative that that comes to an end. That comes to an end. Never again would Moses stand before Pharaoh and call him to repentance. Uh, Moses says, as you say, I'll never see your face again. And I'm saying that is, that, that is typical of what every human being will experience too. We live in this world. Uh, those not in Christ, they, they're called to repentance time and time again. If they are living in proximity to the gospel, of course. I guess we could say that they're even called by uh, nature to, to worship the God who, who made it. You know, there's that doctrine contained within the scriptures too, although the gospel is not contained within nature. But the day will come where they die and there will be no more room left for repentance. Have you noticed how some of these other religions out there, they, 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 have, they have doctrines that are second chance type doctrines, you know. Well, after this life, there will be purgatory. It's nowhere found in Scripture, right? No, there's death, and then there's the judgment. It's in this life that we have opportunity to repent and to believe upon Christ. It's in this life. But when we pass from this world, opportunities for faith and repentance, they're they're over. And we see that in the life of Pharaoh and his interaction with Moses. Uh, There came a point when Moses walked away from Pharaoh and never returned. Never again did Pharaoh see his face. Never again did Pharaoh have this opportunity to turn from his sin and to let the people of Israel go according to the word of God. Now, a question that some might ask is this. How could Pharaoh be held accountable given the repeated emphasis upon God hardening his heart? You should remember that Paul addresses this very question in Romans 9. That would be a good passage for you to read concerning this question. But I want you to notice something very insightful in this passage. In 10.3, we read, So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. And so we might ask, Did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. The scriptures are so very clear about this. The theme repeats over and over again in this this text. But the scriptures are also clear that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. He refused to humble himself before God. And I am saying to you that these two truths are not contradictory. God is sovereign over all things, even the hearts of sinful man. He has the right to harden man's heart as a form of judgment against him, and this he did to Pharaoh. But Pharaoh remained free to act from from his heart 
and to stubbornly and arrogantly resist the word of the Lord. And this is what he did. Pharaoh was to be judged for his own sins, sins that he committed from his own heart. Pharaoh is the one that refused to repent. Pharaoh is the one that refused to humble himself before the Lord. God gave him up to that, yes, and even hardened Pharaoh's heart as a form of judgment against him because of his his wickedness. But he stood before God guilty for his own sin. And this will be true for all who are not in Christ. They will be judged on the last day for their own sin and rebellion, which is rebellion from the heart. These are three very broad observations concerning uh, this very large passage that we have considered this morning. As I've said before, everything that I've said in the past two sermons could be said here as well. Uh, there's so much going on in this text. But I think these, these general observations, they should be very helpful to us because we see what was going on in Egypt as prototypical. Uh, we, we see that this same sort of thing is going on in the world continuously as God Pours out judgment, yes, but it's restrained because He's merciful. And why is it restrained? It's restrained because God is also simultaneously working salvation, calling people to faith and repentance. Thanks be to God for His mercy and grace. And we do know, brothers and sisters, that one day, one day, these opportunities for repentance, for faith in Christ and repentance will come to an end. This opportunity for faith and repentance will come to an end the moment we die, and we do not know when that is. And it will come to an end when Christ returns. When He returns, He will come to judge and to take His people safely into the new heavens and earth which He has earned for them. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. Father, we thank You for this story which is so much more than a story. Um, We thank you for all of the insights that we are able to glean from it concerning the work that you are even now doing in the world. We thank you for the way that Christ is pictured here. We thank you for the way that our salvation in him is pictured here. And we even thank you for the insights that we gain concerning your judgments, O Lord. God, help us to know that you are both Savior and Judge. Help us to see that you have saved through Christ and that you will judge through Christ. And I pray for all who have heard this teaching this morning that they would run to Christ for refuge, that they would take shelter in Him and thus be saved. We thank you for the way that you have brought the Messiah into the world through this people, Israel. We thank you that he is the Savior, not of them only, but of all the peoples of the earth, Egyptians too. God, your plans are very marvelous and great. Your your, your mercy is awesome to consider. Help us, O Lord, to worship and to praise you. Help us to live for your glory as we are found in Christ Jesus. In his name we pray and all of God's people say.